0: Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48. In your pew Bibles, it's page number 50, five zero. Genesis chapter 48. I want to read verses 15 and 16 for our consideration this morning. Genesis chapter 48. Verses 15 and 16. And he, that is Jacob or Israel, blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life, all my life long to this day, The angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Well, these are about the very last words. Uh, There is a tribal blessing given to the 12 sons later, of course, in Genesis chapter 49. But these are among the last words spoken by the great patriarch, Jacob, who was named Israel after that wrestling with God, which we read of in Genesis chapter 42. And as you, I'm sure, are familiar with this background, Jacob is old and infirm. We read, I think it is, in uh, Hebrews that he leaned on his staff and worshipped. We read, of course, in the book of uh, Genesis that he was carried into Egypt. He couldn't walk. And here we note that he was blind. You remember how he crossed his hands and blessed the two sons of uh, Joseph against the wishes and uh, the desire of Joseph himself. But what you see here is that this is a man who has matured and strengthened in his faith and understanding of the things of God. And in these two verses, he sums up some of the greatest and the most important themes that we see stretched across Revelation from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And what we see here is that he has a spiritual perception that is brought about by the working of God the Spirit in his life over many decades. Now of course there are many um, Opinions about Jacob, some people like to think of him simply as a supplanter and a cheat. Uh, Let's not forget uh, that is not something that you can accuse just Jacob of. Uh, Rachel prompted him to do this. Um, And then, of course, you see that Isaac himself wanted contrary to God's revelation at their birth, to snatch the blessing that was destined for Jacob and give it to Esau. But having said all that, remember how God himself talks about Jacob, that he's a prince with God. The Lord talks about uh, Esau in Hebrews as a profane man. So I think we have to have a biblical perspective of Jacob, not to justify his supplanting and his deceit, but he was a man who was, I was going to use the word obsessed, and it wouldn't be wrong, although it has all sorts of negative uh, connotations, but he was obsessed with gaining the Abrahamic blessing. His motive was absolutely good and right and was according to prophecy. And what we see here is that he is spiritually of the sharpest perception and vision. Now let's just look at the text and what he says. In the first place, he speaks about the nature of faith. And this is generational and not only generational, this is true for all people, from the very beginning of history to the very end of history. Look what he says in Genesis chapter 15 and uh, verse 18 of chapter 48. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk. Of course, walk here means a lifestyle before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Now, he is not making those words up. In Genesis 17 and verse 1, uh, you have the three great chapters of Jehovah's call to Abraham, or Abram, while he was still in Ur of the Chaldees, Genesis 12, 15, and then in chapter 17, and this is what Jehovah says. Jehovah appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. Now in the King James it says perfect. Blameless gives a better idea because if we think of perfection in terms of sinless perfection, that's not possible, although it's the ideal. What it really means to walk with integrity. In other words, God calls us to walk in honesty and integrity before us. Faith uh, begins with trusting God, but the God whom we trust calls us to a walk of integrity, which includes, of course, repentance. Doesn't it? Because if we have an integrity, we realize first and foremost, we're not perfect, we fail. And it's just as we enter into the Christian life through repentance and faith, that we continue in the Christian faith. And we think of Remembrance a Day, and it's a most important day, and not only in the life of this nation, but many, maybe all the nations of the world. When a nation and its allies triumphed over such satanic evil, but you know, we often forget last Sunday I was away preaching, but uh, usually we remember the last Sunday in October. It's a Reformation Sunday. It's the day when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And the very first thesis is this, that repentance is meant to be a lifelong pursuit of the believer. And, of course, when we speak about repentance, biblical repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. We believe repentingly and we repent believingly. And so the walk of the believer must be one of faith and repentance. And we are called to walk before him especially among the group that calls themselves the New Calvinists. You know, it always uh, concerns me when eternal truths are given um, an adage and said new something. Well, these are eternal truths, they're not new. But uh, some, even in the reform circles or a very conservative historic Christian faith, uh, speak in terms only of justification by faith. But we are called to walk before him. And here he's asserting this in his old days to Joseph and his children. To a first and second generation. And then of course recorded for us so that God's people might follow this pattern throughout the history of the church. Before whom I fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, before whom he walked and of course, before whom we are all called to walk. Remember the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Of course, that's calling us to the ideal and so there must be obedience in faith. This is the first thing he's stressing. He's of course going to grant blessing upon them, a unique blessing, the greatest of blessings, the Abrahamic blessings. But what he indicates to them is that those who were custodians and who were given the blessing were people who walked before God. We have all sorts of ideas about about evangelistic activities, and we should be involved in evangelism, there has never been so much money spent on evangelism. There has never been so much activities and programs and medias and platforms used. But we don't see any great advance of the cause of Christ, especially in these Western lands, do we? And one of the reasons Perhaps the greatest reason, and many far greater in the kingdom of God have stressed, it's because our walk does not commend itself as the people of God. And I have to say that about myself. I can preach a little bit, but my walk is not what it should be of the people of God. And so... The very first thing he impresses upon them is that we are to walk, called to live in a certain way, not in the externals, but there must be something about us in the very internals that we are told that we, uh, that we commend, and it speaks to others who are believers and also to the world around. How does the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians 1? He says, adorn the gospel. We've got a lot of talk. Talk, talk, talk. hearts, Signing petitions. May the Lord help me and you in these days to long for and to seek the power of the Spirit of God to adorn the gospel. That's what Jacob is saying here. Before whom my fathers walked. And passing on that most important characteristic of the believer. Well, secondly, notice he says that he is a God who meets the needs of his people. Every need of his people. This is very interesting. As you look at verse 15 again, he says, Before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day. I think you can spend quite a bit of time looking at the life of Jacob and how God had provided and protected for him all through and his family and so on, and that would be a legitimate expression, a legitimate exposition of these, of this, this, these words of the great Israel. But I want to focus on what he says about God, the God who fed me all my life long, the God who fed me. That's how it's translated in many translations. The word fed me is exactly the same word that the great David uses in Psalm 23. Jehovah is my shepherd. So a literal translation would read like this. The God who shepherded me. Remember, Jacob was a shepherd. Very successful one. Laban didn't know what was coming as far as the prosperity of Jacob in his shepherding and how he increased in wealth. And he's using this rich term which is a term that is going to be used throughout the scriptures. As I said, and as you know, it's used, of course, most marvelously by David a thousand years later. Jacob lived around 1800 BC. David almost precisely a thousand BC. So 800 years before, the great David pens this great psalm, Jehovah is my shepherd. You see, he's learned it from his great father, Israel. The God who shepherded me. It's exactly the same word. And why is it important? Because shepherding means more than feeding. And that is what David stresses in his psalm. Now, Let's just remind ourselves of what the shepherd actually does. Especially as it is uh, a pointer to how Jehovah, our shepherd, leads his people. In verses 1 to 3, very briefly, what we see in Psalm 23 is Jehovah meets the needs of the body and the soul. We don't have time to look at it in detail, but let's just uh, read those verses and uh, think about it in very general and broad but accurate Terms. Jehovah is my shepherd, I will not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. That's for the body. What the sheep needs for survival and the fitness of its body is green pastures. It's always surprising to me. Some of you know i lived in Australia for over 20 years. And you can drive hundreds of miles, and all you see is brown, dead grass. Uh, many parts, most parts of Australia uh, does not get rain for five, ten, twenty years at a time. And when we came here, you know, three weeks you don't get rain, and they say, "Well, we have a drought, you know it's quite funny, but you can drive all through Britain and not see a brown piece of land. It's green. Well, he's speaking here about green pastures. The, why I mentioned that is a, it's, it strikes me afresh in this land what green pastures actually mean. And this is for the body, but there's also lying beside green pastures. This is a picture of tranquility. God provides for the body and for the mind. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says? In all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding. What does that mean? It's a supernatural peace. Your troubles haven't disappeared. Uh, Illnesses don't go away all the time. There might be great pressures but God gives his people who oh, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, not just prayers and supplication, but prayers and supplication with thanksgiving, provides for our soul in the midst of the storm and the difficulty and the dangers of life. And he gives us a peace that passes human understanding. It does not simply mean that we cannot comprehend it. It does mean that, but it means it's incomprehensible because there is no real basis in humanity for it. It comes from above. He guards our hearts and minds like the great century. So he provides for the body. He provides for our needs. And I think you know, we who live in the West, uh, we don't know what hunger means. Our great trouble is restraining from overconsumption. He's provided for the body, but he provides peace in the midst of trouble. We live in troubled times. And I think most of us who are over 60 are worried about the next generation and the generations to come. Because it's no longer going to be a nation or Western nations that is anything like the times we've lived in. But God is the one who protects his people. He's the one who will protect our children. He's the one who will give peace in the midst of trouble. And then in verse 3, he says this, he restores my soul. And there's not a believer here who's been a believer for any length of time who does not know in some degree or another a restoration of the soul. There are times when we are saddened, when we fail, there's even such a thing as a dark night of the soul, isn't there? I often think worse than the dark night of the soul is the numbness of the soul toward the things of God. We kind of cruise in neutral, spiritually speaking. Why? Because we know some theology, we know we are justified by faith. And therefore, the distance between the reality we know and the truth of our experience, or more importantly, the distance between our soul and that of the presence of God and His outworking in our life is taken almost dismissively by us, if it were left to us completely. But on and off, He restores our soul. It might be through the reading of the Word. It might be through the Word that is in your mind. The Spirit of God awakens us. Of course, in times of revival, these are large and greatly done. But even in our small lives, and often it is done through the preaching of the Word of God. It is the appointed means of... The gathering of God's people. That's why the Bible tells us not to forsake the gathering of the saints together. That's why the the services on the Lord's Day and the prayer meetings for those whose health and time and schedule permit it. Now we know there are mothers with young children, there are other restrictions. We're not talking about that. But our desire should be to meet together. So that the Spirit of God works to restore our souls. And he leads me in paths of righteousness. And he does this in the midst of adversity. The psalmist says in verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And you know, no one better than David to mention this. You read it throughout the history books in the Old Testament. You read it in the Psalms every other mention of his trouble seems to be something that is life-threatening. And all of us go through times when we might feel that this is a life-threatening situation. But others go through it in far more deeper ways. And all of us will one day, unless the Lord comes, before our death will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he says, I'll not fear I'll fear no evil. Now I don't think most of us who have thought about death really fear death itself. What we fear is the process of dying, isn't it? Or we fear or are saddened by leaving those who are our loved ones. We'd like to minister to our children or our grandchildren. We might long to be of some use to the Lord. But what the psalmist says here is even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear any evil because he is with me. And then lastly, and not only. In the face of death not only for the body and the mind and the soul but this word regarding jehovah being our shepherd is for all eternity you remember how he closes that i will dwell in the house of jehovah forever he closes wonderfully first of all says goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life And we have a tendency, and some of us think more in abstract terms. And so we think, well, God will mete out goodness and mercy to us. But it's far more important to think in terms of Jehovah himself. What he's speaking about there in verse 6 is that of Psalm 23, is that Jehovah is the God of goodness. And Jehovah is the God of mercy, and Jehovah pursues us all our life. Have you ever seriously thought about why we are here this morning? Only because of the pursuit and the keeping power of God. If we were left to ourselves, as the hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We believe in the preservation and the perseverance of the saints one of the cardinal doctrines of historic Christian faith, but we persevere only because Jehovah pursues us and preserves us. Our confidence is not in our strength to persevere, although we pray, Lord, help me to persevere, but our confidence is in this, that he pursues us all the days of our lives, and he preserves us. We could illustrate that in the lives of Peter the Apostle and Judas. The only difference between the two is that Judas, of course, by his own will turned away from God. But the reason why Peter was kept was Jesus prayed that his faith failed not. He pursued him and preserved him in time. That's where our confidence comes in Perseverance, not in our little attempts of service. After all, what's our service? We are all but unworthy servants. And our service is wanting in many areas. But he pursues us, he preserves us. He gives us opportunities to serve. And then I will dwell in the house of Jehovah forever. He will guide us home. remember how the Lord Jesus when he prays in his high priestly prayers he says but before that he said, in his high, John 17 he says I desire that they, be, they may be with me where I am see my desire John Owen speaks about this in his I think it's in his communion with God volume. he says he's more constrained with love for us than we are Constrained in our love for him. We want him to make things better here. But he desires that we be with him where he is. You see, all this is contained in this great statement. The God who has shepherded me all my life long. It starts here. time has already gone, but let me see if we can touch on a couple of the things that the great patriarch says here. He is our shepherd. He will shepherd us. The God of Israel, that is not just the nation, but this great patriarch is our God. And we are his people through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 16, he says the angel which redeemed me. Now he's speaking of course of the second person of the Trinity. It's given to us in Hosea about that particular incident in Genesis 32. I'll let you think about that but he's speaking in terms of the God, man who had not yet been incarnated but the second person of the Trinity and he says which redeemed me. He's not only speaking about the God who is the shepherd of his people, but the God who is the redeemer of his people. Again, both these terms, this is not the first time God has redeemed man, He's redeemed Adam in Eden by providing for him um, the skin of the animals and the shedding of blood and so on. But this is the first time the word is used to redeemed. And every blood sacrifice was a proclamation of the redemption price. Paid by another. And of course this is developed in the book of Ruth. Boaz is the kinsman, the redeemer. It's most beautifully and most accurately pictured in the book of Hosea. You see the prophet Hosea, his wife goes into harlotry. And you can only think of what went through the prophet's heart and mind. And he's asked by Jehovah himself to go and redeem her. He goes into the marketplace. Can you imagine what that would be like? It's a humiliating experience. He goes into the marketplace to the auction block. And he begins to bid for her. And there is that exchange. And he redeems her. He he pays the purchase price. Well, that's a great love story, the greatest of love stories, and but it's a picture of redemption. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. Hosea, after all, was a sinner himself. But Jesus, the Holy One of God, he comes into the world to pay a ransom price. He redeems us by the blood that was shed on Calvary. And so when Jacob says he redeemed me, he redeemed him from many dangerous ways, but it is only as we see it in the Gospels we realize what Jehovah has done for us. He is our kinsman redeemer. As You go through the book of Ruth, there is a phrase that is repeated again and again about Boaz. You'll remember it. He's a close relative. Jesus came into the world so that he could redeem us by becoming a close relative. He becomes flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones and sheds his blood for us. And then, notice in verse 16, he says, bless the lads and let my name be named on them. Naming is possession, isn't it? And belonging. In a marriage, a wife although all this is being refuted now, but the truth will stand forever. The fact of the matter is, uh, a wife, uh, in a marriage, the wife is named after the husband. The children are named after the parents and so on. This is possession. And this is exactly, we are called Christians. We are brought into the family of God. We belong to him. He died for us and he rose again for us. He didn't rise again simply to show his power. He rose again for us. He is the head or as the apostle Paul says he is the first fruit of the harvest. The fact that he rose is the guarantee of our resurrection. And we are united to him. He is the the head we are the body. And here in these words he uses that he is our redeemer. That we are his people. We are named. We belong to him. And lastly, in verse 16, he says, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Very interesting. He only had 12 sons. By the time he gets into Egypt, there were 70 and obviously some more. But you see throughout the history of Israel, they multiplied, didn't they? By the time of Solomon, he says, you promised with your mouth and performed with your hands. They had become a great nation. Under David and Solomon, they were the great power of the day. But you see this in spiritual Israel even more profoundly fulfilled, don't we? You Look to the east and the west, the south and the north, the descendants of Abraham by faith. And we are part of it. We've become a great multitude in Christ. You'll remember in John chapter 10 from the reading, he said, I pray for those who will believe on me through their witness. He's looking down the corridors of time and he's looking at us and if there are generations to follow them. You see, even here in the very first book of Moses, we have God who calls us to walk before him who is our shepherd, our redeemer, and the one who promises to lead us home? He meets our every need for the body, for the mind, for the soul, for time and history, and for eternity. I see there's a wonderful category of gauging where we are in our spiritual health. The Apostle Paul says he's going to appear for those who eagerly wait for him. Our eagerness in waiting for the coming of the Lord is at such a low end. We look at the culture and we criticize it. And the culture is going down the drain at a million miles an hour. But you know, you cannot expect anything else from the culture. It's a godless culture. It's a God-rejecting culture. It's a culture that, according to Psalm 2, rages against Jehovah and his anointed. But what about us? We are citizens of a kingdom to come. And we must eagerly wait for it. Well, may the Lord remind us as he speaks to us, and these are infinite words, he says, I am the good shepherd. He's also the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And he will not only meet our every need in this world, he will lead us right through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. And through death, and on judgment day, he is our advocate and our righteousness. Well, may the Lord help us to follow him as his sheep and be secure in his sheepfold both now and forevermore because, you know, we will dwell in the house of Jehovah forever. Amen. Amen. Well, Let's close by singing hymn number 95, Isaac Ward's surrendering of Psalm 23. And may it be our profession and confession and faith as we sing it.